Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Spurbs Herbs. Today we are going to be talking about our first category, which is warm and release the exterior herbs. So this is going to be an interesting exploration. As always, I am your presenter, Dr. Greg Sperber. Let's uh, see who's sponsoring us today. So today, if you would please support us by using our Amazon banner ad on our homepage at www.spurbsherbs.com, that would be very helpful and help us to continue to do this. If you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board Continuing Education Units and National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental, Medi and, uh, Oriental Medicine, NCCAOM. PDAs are professional development activities at a reasonable cost at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. So that's integrativemedicinecouncil.org. We are looking for sponsors for our podcast. If you're looking for effective, super targeted, personalized advertising with an excellent return on investment, check out the advertising section of our website. All right, let's get into it. So today uh, we are covering warm and release the exterior herbs. And before we can start talking about what this category is, we kind of have to get into some Chinese medical theory to really discuss why we would even have a category of herbs like this. So we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to start um, with discussing external causes of disease. So the chapter uh, that covers these herbs is called J Bao Yao, J Bao Biao, sorry, J Biao Yao. As usual, my warning on my Chinese and as we're going to find out later, Latin, my Latin pronunciation should is not always exactly correct, so please forgive me. So J Bao Yao are ex, or exterior resol resolving medicinals. That's what J Biao Yao means, exterior resolving medicinals. Today's topic is a category under this chapter, and it's used to treat external conditions, specifically wind-cold conditions. So in Chinese medicine, there are three major causes of disease, internal, external, and miscellaneous. So let's get into all those just briefly. Internal causes are the seven emotions. So these include anger, joy, sadness, worry, Pensiveness, or as it was originally uh, described to us, overthinking, fear, and shock. Those are the internal causes, which is interesting if you think about it, that the in, all the internal causes of disease are from our emotions. Now, not uh, we're not talking about normal emotions. It's normal to be angry at some points and joy and sadness and worry. All those things are normal. It's when they become abnormal that they can become a cause of disease, of internal disease. But that's all we're probably going to talk about that today. Uh, miscellaneous causes of disease include things such as a weak constitution, overwork, excessive sexual activity, especially in men, diet, trauma, parasites, poisons, incorrect treatments, uh, drugs, both medicinal and recreational. So these are all miscellaneous causes, and we're not going to be talking much more about those either today. What we are going to be talking about is external conditions. We're going to be concentrating on these. There may be an internal component such as deficiency that contributes to these external conditions, but generally we are just going to be talking about the external conditions. So when the body is healthy and in balance, climate or weather does not cause disease. So in other words, if you're healthy and you go out and it's super hot, you're fine. You can weather it just fine. If you go out and you're healthy and it's colder, you're fine. So as long as you're healthy and in balance, that doesn't, and, and it's normal weather, you'll be okay. However, when this balance is disturbed, either when the body is weak or the climate is excessive or unseasonable, then disease can occur. This unseasonable is important. If we get a cold snap in the middle of summer, people might get sick from that. And the same vice versa. I'm from San Diego, uh, California, and we will get uh, almost, uh, without question, we'll get a heat snap in the middle of winter. And I know when that happens, I'm going to get a bunch of cold, uh, patients with colds coming in. So um, if it's unseasonable, then we have these conditions coming. So we talked about the internal causes of disease. We talked about the miscellaneous causes of disease. When it comes to the external causes of disease, 
What we're really talking about are something called the six climatic factors, cl climatic factors or weather factors. And these are wind, cold, summer heat, dampness, dryness, and fire. We're gonna get much more specific into each of these. This is where we're gonna spend a little bit of time today. So wind, cold, summer heat, dampness, dryness, and fire. So, you know, before we get into too much of these external causes of disease, one of the things that worries me a little bit about this episode is for observer is I always try to bring in a little bit of the science and, and medicine into what we're talking about. And when you listen to a lot of what we're going to be talking about, it sounds kind of out there. Um, you know, wind is and cold is going to invade your body and cause all kinds of problems. Yes, from a Chinese perspective, that's how we discuss these things. But we also have to think about this, that they're not necessarily, we're not saying that a wind or a heat or a cold, it, you know, we call them cold pathogens, we do this stuff, is going to attack you like you're sitting out there just waiting to, to come in. It's more of a, a theoretical concept. So think about them in terms of, um, it's a theoretical construct and it is very helpful as we go through and deal with, we look at the signs and symptoms and we look at um, proper treatments. These concepts help us do that. But it isn't like, you know, we're not equating a wing cold to a virus or, an, or a bacteria. Though, if you have a bacterial infection, you have a viral infection, we would say there's some aspect of it. But we're going to determine um, wind just means something came in from the outside generally. But um, we are going to look at your symptoms and we're going to determine whether it's a cold or a dampness or a dry or a heat sort of situation. And it's more about your complex of symptomatology rather than this concept of invasion from the outside. Now, we still talk about it in terms of invasion from the outside. And we're actually going to find out that's kind of important as we go forward with it. But we have to keep in mind as we talk about these things that we're talking about a syndrome, which is a collection of signs and symptoms, not necessarily that we believe there's some sort of wind cold attack going on. That's just our terminology. It's a worldview to a certain extent, and it works because we can effectively treat it using this paradigm. But the paradigm sounds strange from a medical scientific point of view. Um, and we just have to think that this is just the way we're classifying the symptoms and, and signs and not to take this attack thing too literally, though I am going to talk about it in terms of that. So as we get into these, uh, each of these six climactic uh, factors are associated with a specific organ and with a specific season. We talked about we want to make sure we're we're seasonal, uh, not being unseasonable with these sort of things. So wind is associated with spring and the liver. So we actually technically get more colds with the spring, according to this theory, potentially uh, than other times of the year. It's not always true, but it, it, it definitely seems like when we go from winter into uh, spring, uh, there tends to be more, from our perspective, a little more wind uh, conditions. Uh, wind, and, and it's important to remember this liver context because we're going to talk about external wind versus internal wind and liver plays a role in that, so keep that in mind. Cold is associated with winter in the kidneys. Summer heat, um, summer heat is this sort of uh, thing that we have and it's sort of a, think of it as sort of a combination of a damp and a heat and it happens in late summer or what some people say Indian summer, that's summer heat and fire with summer and the heart are associated with summer and the heart. We have dampness, which is associated with this late Indian, uh, late summer or Indian summer and the spleen. Um, we do have dryness with autumn and the lungs. Uh, and that's an important one as well. I, one of the things I know that I see a lot of in autumn is a lot of dry skin conditions, including my own. And so uh, that's, that's normal with, with autumn, that dryness. And the lungs are in charge of the skin, according to Chinese medicine. So that, that makes perfect sense as well. As wind is usually a pathogen to invade the body, these causes can be combined, such as in a wind cold or wind damp external attack. So we're going to talk about those. 
uh, quite a bit. We're, today we're specifically going to be talking about wind cold attacks or wind cold uh, invasions. So when wind attacks from the outside, it is an external wind and has specific signs and symptoms. Wind can also be an interior pathogen through one of two mechanisms. One is an internal disharmony, such as a liver dysfunction, can cause wind. So if you have uh, liver fire or, or liver blood deficiency, wind can be the result of that. We're not going to get into that today. Uh, also, wind can be an interior pathogen when uh, it penetrates from the exterior into the interior, either because of improper treatment, weak health, or a very strong pathogen. And when a pathogen is really strong, we can call it epidemic or pestilential chi is um, sort of the term we say in Chinese medicine. This, this is such a strong pathogen, epidemic chi is so strong that it overpowers even a healthy person. And, and we can see a lot of that going on. I'm, I'm, I'm recording this in the middle of, of COVID-19 and we're, this would definitely in Chinese medicine be considered epidemic chi. So even if you are, are fairly strong, you can be susceptible to, to getting COVID or the coronavirus. So uh, that is definitely very relevant today. Another way an artificial disease can be caused is artificial climate. So it still has that heat and cold and all that sort of things, but we're doing them artificially. So if you, have, if you know people, if you are one or you know someone who can't sit under the air conditioner because they get a chill and they get uh, they get uh, start coughing or running nose or something, that's one of these artificial climates. So air conditioning, both hot and cold, uh, can, can be an external cause of disease. Refrigerated rooms, we worked in a, in a uh, we have a family friend who works in a, in a refrigerator room of the supermarket cutting up fruit. Um, so that would be one, one example. Hot or dry places of work such as kitchens or manufacturing plates, uh, plants, excuse me, manufacturing plants. Those can absolutely uh, cause artificial climates and can cause these sort of conditions that we're talking about today. So when we go back into the classics, uh, we have, we've, we've mentioned this before in previous podcasts, we have the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Medicine, or the Wang Di Mei Jing. Uh, and, and this is probably the oldest extant medical book, especially in Chinese medicine. And probably, I mean, there's some stuff around the same period of time in Western medicine, but this is definitely uh, much more intact than most of those sort of things. Uh, it was written about 200, second century, second or third century uh, BCE, so before the Common Era. And this is what it, it says about how an external pathogen penetrates. By, by the way, this is what we still believe in Chinese medicine, but again, it's a construct, it's a theoretical construct that explains the symptoms and signs that we see. So here's the quote. In general, when a pathogen invades the body, it first enters the skin level. If it lingers or is not expelled, it will travel into the microlul, wo, L-U-L, wo, uh, which we can often translate as connecting channels or minute connecting channels. From here, it proceeds into the main channels connecting to the five zong organs. So we've talked about this a little bit, zong fu. Um, that's what we call internal organs in Chinese medicine or zong fu. Uh, and we actually say there's six of each, six zong, six fu. Zong means solid organs uh, or uh, yin organs, and the fu are the yang organs or hollow organs. So in the zong, we have things like the heart and lungs and the spleen, uh, liver. In the fu, we have things like the bladder and the gallbladder and the small and large intestines, things along those lines. And here it says, connecting to the five, it goes, it proceeds into the main channels, connecting to the five zong organs. Only five here. The reason why is there's a sixth one that was not really discussed much at this period of time, and that's the pericardium, um, which is considered a zong organ, uh, but not at this period of time. So they talk about the five zong, and then they talk about the Huangdi Mei Jing. So uh, after, so it proceeds uh, from the micro connecting channels, minute connecting channels, into the main channels, and the main channels connect to each of the organs. So now we have this traveling into the pathogen traveling into the organs and finally into the intestines and stomach. And so that's considered uh, the worst case uh, of this. And continuing with the quote, at this stage, everything may be affected. The five zong will certainly suffer injury. 
This is the progression from the skin level into the five zone organs. So what this really clearly kind of demonstrates is that we need to deal with this. We can't just let a external pathogen just kind of do its own thing because eventually we're going to get sicker and sicker and sicker and we're going to not get too much into it, but we're going to find that it can be terminal if we allow these things to continue, which of course a strong infectious disease are often, uh, often uh, uh, deadly lethal. So we do need to worry about this, both in Chinese and in Western medicine. So let's get a little bit more into these signs and symptoms. So wind, heat, and wind cold are the two most common external pathogens. There are others, uh, but this is the, the most common ones. And so we're gonna talk about those. Two of the most common signs and symptoms in either of these are aversion to cold and fever. And together, these two are hallmarks of an external invasion. So fever, um, we're gonna find out that you can have fever uh, when it goes more internal, but it's a different kind of fever than what we're talking about here. Uh, and aversion to cold is very specific. We're gonna talk specifically about that, what that means right now. So aversion to cold refers to the subjective feeling of cold includes that shivery feeling we get when we're ill. So this is important, it is subjective. It is not something that we can measure, that we can determine, it is the patient reporting to us. That's what subjective means. It's a, a patient's a, a personal sense of feeling cold. So technically we want to cover ourselves with blankets with this aversion to cold. However, it does not relieve the feeling of cold which is very interesting. In other words, external cold is not relieved by covering up, but internal can be. So have you ever been cold? You know, you have, you're, you're coming down with a cold or a flu and you're cold and you get into the pit, under the covers, you've got super whole bunch of layers of covers over you and you're still freezing and you're still shivering. That is what external cold does. It, it doesn't matter how many covers you have over you, you're still gonna be cold. And we're gonna kind of talk around why that's the case. If you have internal cold, it can help. So if you are feeling better, then it, it, can, be, it, it, it can be a more internal pathogen uh, than what we're talking about today. The other aspect that happens with this aversion of cold is it arises suddenly. One of the aspects of wind is that it, it happens suddenly. And so when we have, as you know, when you have a cold, you're, you're fine. And then a few hours later, you're sick. And so that's part of this aversion of cold is it arises suddenly. If it takes a long time, if you're kind of chilly and then you, you get even chillier and then finally you're cold, that is not an external cold attack. So here's how this works. This is why we have this. So normally we have a type, so we talk about qi in Chinese medicine. A lot of people will interpret that as, as energy. I, I really hate that interpretation. One of these days on, these, on this podcast, I keep saying this, we're, we're gonna talk about qi um, and get into it. But one of the interesting aspects of qi is that there's a lot of different kinds of qi. I already mentioned epidemic or uh, pestilential qi. Those are just different translations of the same word. That's a type of qi that's negative, that attacks and is not good. Um, but there's lots of qi, different types of qi in the body. And one of those types of qi is wei qi or defensive qi. And what this does is it circulates in the space between the skin and the muscles warms the muscles and actually protects us. That's why it's called defensive chi, protects us from external pathogens. So think of this as our first defense against something trying to get us. So, you know, have you, you, you know, this happens all the time that your, your friends or, you know, friends or family have a cold and somehow you don't get it, um, even though everyone else does. Well, that's because your wei chi was strong, stronger than the pathogen and you were able to defend yourself. So that's what happens here. However, when wind gets in and actually blocks the circulation of this defensive chi, it is not able to warm the muscles and aversion to cold ensues. That's when we get aversion to cold. So what's happening is your defensive chi is blocked by this pathogen. Or if we, we talk about it as being blocked, but another way to say it is it's engaged with this pathogen, I think might be a, an actually more useful way to, to look at it. So it's not able to do its proper circulation and warm the muscles. And the stronger the pathogenic factor, the more intense the aversion to cold. There are four degrees of aversion to cold according to Chinese medicine. So from least to most severe, they include Wufeng, 
or disliking wind, and this is uh, translated as aversion to wind. So rather than aversion to cold, the least severe is called aversion to wind. The patient has goosebumps or for our uh, British friends, goose pimples. Uh, dislikes the, dis, the patient dislikes going out in the wind and prefers to stay indoors. So they're just avoiding wind. This is that sense of like you're just feeling a little off and so you flip up the, the, um, the color of your shirt or the color of your jacket to kind of protect your neck. That would be aversion to wind. Then there's weihan or fear of cold. The patient feels quite cold, desires to be indoors, covered up and near heat. Then there's kind of what we've been talking about, Wuhan or aversion to cold. This is where the patient feels very cold, wants to be indoors and covered up in bed. So the fear of cold is not necessarily in bed. You just want to be inside near heat. The aversion of cold is you want to be indoors, covered up in bed, even though it does not improve the, improve the feeling as we discussed earlier. Finally, there's Han Shan, which is shivers. And the patient feels extremely cold, shivers, and though wanting to cover up with several blankets, it does not help. And I know we've all been sick at some point with this sort of uh, aversion of cold, this level of aversion of cold called shivers or Han Shan. All right, so that's aversion of cold. Let's talk about fever. So as opposed to aversion of cold, fever is an objective finding. Remember, aversion of, aversion of cold is a subjective feeling. You are feeling, the patient's feeling it. Uh, as a doctor, as a practitioner, you cannot observe anything objectively to explain aversion to cold. However, fever is an objective finding. Uh, the Chinese term for this is called fa-re, or emitting or issuing heat. And it is a physical, palpable sensation of heat, usually from the forehead or dorsum of the hand, not the palm, the dorsum of the hand. It may or may not mean an actual temperature as measured from a thermometer. You can have a fever according to this Chinese terminology, but not actually have a raised temperature. It just means that your forehead, your dorsum of your hand are palpably hot as compared to other areas of the body. In an invasion of wind, the dorsum of the hand will be hot when compared with the palm. By the same token, the upper back feels hot when compared to the chest. So these are two ways that you can uh, feel fever. So if you're not sure, grab someone. Um, if you're not sure if someone has this quote unquote fever, take their hand in both of your hands and the, the back of the hand, the dorsum of the hand should feel warmer than the palm of the hand. So according to Machiosha, which is, is one of our textbook authors, fever is produced by the struggle between the exterior pathogenic factor and the body's chi. So um, what we're talking about is the pathogen is trying to get in and the body's chi is trying to fight it. Now, I mentioned defensive chi earlier. Um, that's right on the surface. So as soon as you get past the skin, and we are, when we're talking about fever, remember we're into the muscle layer at that point. We're, we're kind of past that defensive chi. Not that defensive chi isn't important and isn't useful, but really what we're talking about here is something we call upright chi or zheng chi. And this is sort of our body's you know, another translation of this righteous chi. It's it's sort of our core chi that's being brought out in and into the battle. So think about if you want to think of defensive chi might be, you know, soldiers on the border of a country just protecting the borders. Upright chi are the whole army behind them in the middle of the country coming out to help support them. And that's what we're talking about when we, we talk about fevers produced by the struggle between the exterior pathogenic factor and the body's chi. The strength of the fever is indicative of the struggle's intensity. A stronger pathogen and or stronger strength of upright chi, usually the stronger the fever. However, other factors may be involved, such as having a young or hot constitution. If you tend to heat anyways, you may have a strong fever, even if the pathogen isn't very strong. So based on these conditions, there are actually three types of fever. There's a high fever due to strong pathogenic factor and strong upright chi. So you have a big clash. You have two big armies, they're all coming together and that produces a high fever. A medium fever is due to a strong pathogen and weak upright chi or vice versa. So you could have a strong upright chi and a weak pathogen and this brings up a medium fever. And if there's low or no fever, uh, when both the pathogenic factor and the upright chi are weak. And so I always think of this one, you know, in the elderly when we, um, when someone has a, uh, a, 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 a 
infection in the elderly, they may have a very low fever or even no fever. One of the, the uh, things that we, we worry about is something like a, a urinary infection, which would normally maybe cause a fever in, in a lot of people, but it doesn't in the elderly and it can be very hidden and not know if it's there. That's because they have their upright chi is weak and the pathogenic factor is not quite there. So that's that low or no fever. All right, so that's a version of cold, that's fever. Those are two of the most common kind of um, what we call pathognomic factors to an external attack. Pathognomic means when we see these things, see these symptoms, signs or symptoms, we know it, it means this, it means this disease. That's what pathognomic means. And so that's what we're seeing here. Uh, let's get into each of those climactic uh, factors that we talked about and, and talk a little bit about those. So the first one, let's talk about the signs and symptoms of wind. So when wind invades the space between the skin and muscles, it can cause aversion to cold, fever, so we talked about both those, a sore throat, sneezing. Sneezing is a, a real common indicator. If you sneeze a lot, then you're, you're battling wind. Rhinitis, runny nose, occipital stiffness. This is back of the neck stiffness. And a floating pulse. So pulses are very important in Chinese medicine. A floating pulse indicates something's attacking the surface. And uh, a floating pulse, uh, at some point we'll talk about pulses, but a floating pulse is something that when you press on it, you feel it just on the surface of the skin. Uh, and as you press deeper, it kind of goes away. That's a floating pulse. So uh, as wind invades the muscles and channels, there could be sudden stiffness, rigidity, and contractions of the muscles. You can get spasms of the muscles, things along those lines. So it definitely uh, causes that sort of thing. And again, wind is sudden. So sudden stiffness, rigidity, and contractions or spasms of the muscles. And it can also continue to invade the joints. And that can be pain that moves among the joints, especially in the upper body. Wind tends to be in the upper body. And so uh, any joints uh, generally are gonna be affected from the upper body. So that's wind. Let's talk about the signs and symptoms of cold. As cold invades the muscles and sinews, there can be contraction of muscles, pain, and chills. So again, we have similar aspects as we did with the wind. The difference here is it's definitely stronger contraction. Cold contracts, so it's definitely a stronger contraction, and that's usually an aspect there as it invades the muscles and sinews. Pain in the muscles and sinews, that's that's part of this process as too, but part of this process as well. Uh, and chills, it can cause chills, of course, it's cold. As it invades the joints, it can cause severe joint pain. So while the wind may cause joint pain, and it, it often moves, you know, movement is one of the aspects of wind. When cold gets in, cold stays and congeals and cause it can cause severe pain. So if it invades the joints, it's severe joint pain. If it invades the stomach, intestines, or uterus, it can cause sudden epigastric or abdominal pain nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and or acute dysmenorrhea. So uh, dysmenorrhea means uh, a pain uh, in menstruation. So uh, menstrual pain, acute menstrual pain. So that's if it invades stomach, intestines, or uterus. Moving on to signs and symptoms of dampness. As dampness invades muscles and sinews, it can cause a feeling of heaviness of the limbs and a dull ache of the muscles. Have you ever had that where it just feels hard to move your limbs. That's dampness. And it's very common. So we've probably all experienced uh, some of that uh, at some point. And the ache of the muscles, it's a dull ache. It's not that stabbing pain. It's not a moving pain. It's sort of a dull ache that's kind of throughout the muscle. It can invade joints. It can cause pain. Again, heaviness is an aspect of dampness. So it, it can cause heaviness of the joint. So difficulty. Um, moving the joints, maybe stiffness of the joints, swelling of the joints, because dampness is fluid, so swelling can be there. Especially in joints of lower body, dampness tends to settle in the lower body. So we said wind is upper body, and here we see dampness is lower body. Because dampness often will deal with, ur with uh, uh, urinary tract, it can cause urinary discomfort. It can also cause acute vaginal discharge, acute skin conditions, 
with papules and vesicles. So papules and vesicles are basically fluid-filled um, bumps. Uh, so if you ever have like a white head, that would be a papule. Uh, if you had a bigger boil or something, that would be a vesicle. Or it can also cause acute digestive upset. Again, that acuteness because it's an external attack. Acute means sudden. So some other external pathogens that we talked about were summer heat. Summer heat can cause aversion to cold, fever, sweating, thirst, headache, dark urine, and a floating rapid pulse. The dark urine, we say uh, dark urine is from heat, and that's why there's dark, dark urine there. And because it's summer heat, it's dampness, which goes to the urinary tract as well. It, it, summer heat, like I said, is sort of a combination of damp and, and heat. Uh, so fever, sweating, thirst, headache, dark urine, and a floating rapid pulse. So you have that floating pulse, which means you're being attacked from the outside. Rapid is talking about the heat coming in as well. So when uh, Chinese medicine talks about a rapid pulse versus a slow pulse, we, we're talking about heat versus cold. Dryness can cause an acute dry cough, aversion to cold. Again, we have that aversion to cold here. Fever, uh, makes sense, and a dry mouth and nose. So if you have dryness, you know, symptoms, you probably have dryness as an external pathogen. And finally, the sixth of the climactic factors is fire. And this can cause aversion to heat. So rather than aversion to cold, it's aversion to heat um, because fire is strong and hot. High fever, sweating, thirst, horse thirst, you're burning up all the fluids from the heat. Confusion, if it gets worse, you have some mental confusion. The tongue is usually red with a yellow coating on it, and you have an overflowing rapid pulse, overflowing or surging rapid pulse. This is big energies happening. That's fire. Those are the signs and symptoms of all the external pathogens. All right, so we're still not in our herbal category yet. We're getting there. This is all the foundational stuff. We're, we're getting there. So we want to talk about some classical theories. There are two major classics or theories that describe how external pathogens enter the body. And these are uh, based on, um, the first one is called the Changhan Lun, which is uh, uh, translated as on cold damage. This is, uh, we're gonna talk more about it. Really important text, uh, ancient text in, in Chinese medicine. It talks about how exterior pathogens enter the body. And the other one is, is called Wenbing Shui or warm disease theory. This is much uh, later, uh, almost modern uh, times, and has a different aspect, different viewpoint. So let's talk about both of these. So the Shanghong Lung is one of, if not the earliest extant existing books on Chinese herbal formulas. There are earlier books on Chinese herbs, but not necessarily formulas, at least not that we have in our possession today. It was written by Zhang Zhang Jing, as one book in the second century CE called the Shanghan Zabing Lun or on cold damage and miscellaneous diseases. That book was later, it was broken up and found and later split in into two books. One is the Shanghan Lun and the second is the Jingwei Yao, Yao Wei or the, the uh, Golden Chambers Medicinals. So we're going to talk about the Shanghan Lung today. And the Shanghan Lung, in the Shanghan Lung, it describes what are known and often described, uh, translated as the six stages. Sometimes you'll hear patterns, the six patterns. The six stages is probably most common. And these explain how an external pathogen, cold pathogen, will penetrate from the exterior of the body to the interior of the body. And there are basically describing six stages, six layers it takes for the pathogen to get through. Uh, these are the layers of paired yin and yang meridians as described in the Wangdian Neijing. So it, it, it takes what was in the Wangdian Neijing and expands that into this six stages theory. And while these stages can be sequential, and often we think of them as sequential, they do not need to be. You can jump around. You can go from one to the other in both directions, going in or out. So uh, we keep that in mind. So basically, it, Initially, pathogens will enter the three yang pairings, which are from external to internal, or tai yang or greater yang. Then they goes to the yang mean or yang brightness stage. And then finally it goes into the xiao yang or lesser yang stage. These yang meridian pairings are considered external with xiao yang being described as half exterior, half interior by some translators, 
and others will translate it as neither interior or exterior. So um, we often, in colloquially in Chinese medicine, will say half in, half out is Xiaoyang. So those are the three meridian pairings, and then we have the three yin, uh, those are the three yang meridian pairings. Now we have the three yin meridian pairs, and these are all considered internal conditions, and they are Tai Yin or greater yin, Xiao Yin or lesser yin, and Jui Yin or terminal yin. So, you know, the terminal yin doesn't necessarily mean terminal, as in deadly. Uh, it just means it's the last of the yin. However, if a disease gets to that stage, it is often terminal. It's, it's difficult to, that is definitely the most serious of all the, the stages. So those are the six stages. So we have the Tai Yang, Yang Ming, Xiao Yang, and then we have the Tai Yin, Xiao Yin, and Jue Yin. And the Tai Yang and Yang Ming are definitely external. The Xiaoyang are half internal, half external. So getting into, so that's one way to view a pathogen entering the body. We have the Wen Bing theory, which happened much later, it was developed much later than the Shang Hong Lung. Uh, it is a set of theories developed by several doctor authors rather than a single specific book. So the Shang Hong Lung was all presented in the one book by Zhang Zhang Jing. This had several doctors, it's more of a, a theory or a, a thought of, uh, you know, a collection of thoughts around this. And it was first, I say proposed, I don't know if I'd say proposed, but first uh, initially started by Wang Lu in the 14th century CE. So we're talking 1200 years after Shang Hong And the thought was, what if warm diseases were not caused by a cold invasion, but could be caused by a direct invasion of a warm pathogen? Again, these are kind of concepts. And what we're really looking about when we talk about a cold pathogen, a warm pathogen, is we're looking at patterns of signs and symptoms. So uh, these, this thought from Wang Lu in the 14th century were, was much more fully developed during the Qing Dynasty, which ran from 1644 to 1911. And when I say 1911, I mean the last you know few uh, major additions to this theory were in the late 1800s. And so it was almost right up to that 1911 date. So instead of the six stages of the Shang Han Lung, Wen Bing theory discusses the four levels. Again, these levels are from external to internal and are based on physiological aspects of the body. And they include the protective or Wei level. So we talked about protective or Wei Qi. That's kind of what we're talking about is that protective or Wei level. Then it goes to the Qi level, the nutritive or Ying level, and the blood or Shui level. So let's, let's break these down just a little bit before we move on. So uh, a, a, a pathogen enters, and in this case, a warm pathogen enters. And the first thing it hits is the Wei Qi, the Wei level. And that's where the body kind of strikes up things to try and deal with it. If it goes just a touch deeper, it goes into the Qi level. Remember we talked about a fever is that battle between upright Qi and the pathogen. That Qi level is sort of that upright Qi. It's, that's where it's getting into. Then we have the nutritive or Ying level which is deeper in the body. This is, uh, the, the ying is what the blood and chi circulates to around the body, the, the nutrients that help the body survive. So the nutritive or ying level. So if it attacks that level, you start to have some issues with that. And finally, we have the blood or shui level. Uh, and this is where it enters the blood and is quite internal. I, you know, this is totally a mashup of my own doing, but I often think of this as something, um, it's, it's not exactly, I don't want the signs and symptoms to be there, but I think of it in terms of, of having a, um, a blood infection uh, throughout the body. And uh, I'm totally blanking on the, the term for that. It's a real common medical term. And uh, in my old age, I'm having trouble pulling up some of these terms. It'll come to me. So that's the blood or shui level. So those are the four levels, protective or wei, qi level, nutritive or ying, and then finally the blood or shui level. The protective level is considered external, while the th other three levels are internal. So we only have one external level in, in Wen Bing theory. So that's just a taste of some of the signs and symptoms and theoretical constructs for an external attack. Whole multi-semester classes in China can, and in the United States can delve into each of these aspects. There are whole classes just on Shang Han Lung, a whole class on Wen Bing 
uh, theory. I mean, these are, you, and we're doing it all in 15 minutes. So this is a very cursory overview. We will explore more of these concepts in other podcasts as appropriate. So as we get into other uh, you know, categories, as, uh, whenever it's appropriate, we'll, we'll talk about these. So we now have some of these basics down. Let's actually start discussing the actual herb category that we're brought here today to discuss. So we now understand that this chapter of herbs is used to treat external pathogen factors, such as wind cold, wind heat, wind dampness, and summer heat that attack the body superficially. That's the whole chapter. That's the whole grouping here. But today we're specifically discussing the category of warm and release, the exterior herbs, which primarily treat wind cold. That's what we're doing today. Uh, and it's, it's actually, you know, it's specific, but there's a lot of herbs in this, a relatively large category. So when the wind cold comes in, the signs and symptoms are, as we talked about, aversion of cold and fever, also headache, stiffness of the neck, especially the back of the neck, general muscle aches, a superficial and tight pulse. So we talked about a floating or superficial pulse previously. Um, cold it brings in an element of tightness. So that's um, when you have a superficial and tight pulse and that's when cold. With a tongue coat, which is white and moist. So white is considered cold. The body will try and fight this invasion. If the body's upright chi or wei chi is strong and or the pathogen is weak, the body may resolve this invasion through productive sweating. So if, you, if you're doing pretty well, then you will have good sweat and it will leave the body. The body does not sweat or it is not a productive sweat. And we, the, the definition of a productive, non-productive sweat is it does not affect the condition. So you may sweat, but it doesn't do anything. This category of herbs needs to be applied because we want this out. We don't want it going internal. We want it to go out. And the way we make it go out, as we're going to find out, is to sweat, is to open up the pores and let things out. And that's where we're at. Most of the herbs in this category are diaphoretic in action, meaning they release or expel pathogens through sweating. Diaphoresis is, is a common uh, approach with, with Western herbology as well as Chinese herbology in those sort of cases. If this fails and the pathogen enters further into the body, it lodges into the muscle layer and general body aches and profuse non-productive sweating occurs. So that's what we're talking about when it goes just a step in. We still use these herbs but we have to use different ones and that work more with those muscle layers. And there is a subset of this category of herbs that release the muscle layer, and these must be employed if, it go, if the pathogen goes to that. Um, Guajir cinnamomy ranulus, or cinnamon twig, is the most prominent of these and are, are used quite frequently when something gets into the muscle layer. So while most of the herbs in this category are diaphoretic, or as it is often translated, release the exterior, Many have additional functions such as, such as stopping coughs and wheezing, venting rashes, and helping pain and spasms. In general, warm and release the exterior herbs are used primarily to treat wind cold conditions, as we mentioned earlier. They are mostly acrid and aromatic in flavor. So acrid is often translated as, as spicy. Um, so spicy and aromatic, so lots of smells and things along those lines. Because aromatics, a lot of aromatic herbs, once you have an aromatic herb, you always want to think about how you're going to prepare that herb. And generally with aromatics, we want to uh, make sure we're not overboiling them or we often will add them to the end of a formula, a uh, cooking formula, so that we don't blow off all the, the smells. So they're acrid and aromatic in flavor and enter the lung and bladder and tend to be upfloating. So in other words, they go to the upper body and they go out. So let's get into each of the, the herbs. We're just going to briefly mention each of the herbs in this category. Probably the, the first herb we all, I, I, everyone I've known, every herb class I've known, I know in my class, Ma Huang, Herba, Ephedra, Ephedrum Herba, um, was the first herb that we, we learned. It's a super important, super strong, useful herb, and it is currently banned in the U.S. and many other countries. And when I say banned, I mean, there are some ways around it and you might be able to use it in a private practice legally. Um, the problem that I have with it is if some, if your patient were, were uh, you know, got hurt from using it, there'd be no defense. I mean, you shouldn't, you know, the, with all the information and the banning, 
uh, shouldn't be used. I, I think there's some medical legal aspects of that that are concerning. Uh, so one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's we're going to find out it's very strong in, in treating wind cold, but beyond just releasing the exterior through perspiration, it's very useful in treating cough and wheezing by disseminating the lung chi. So whenever there's wheezing in an external tachycardia or not, this is something that can be used, uh, ha had been used in asthma attacks. So very good at, at, at opening up the lungs. That's Ma Huang, the Guiju, uh, Cinnamomy ramulus or cinnamon twig. Many clinically useful functions besides releasing the exterior, including warming the channels and the yang. Uh, we, we use this a lot actually and, and used in, in lots of different functions not just for releasing the the exterior so it's a really important herb for us so that's uh cinnamomy ramulus we have this yeah which is prilifolium uh this is um prilla leaf and you even if you don't know anything about chinese medicine you probably know this herb um, what this herb is, is traditionally it's the green herb that is with sushi. So if you've ever eaten, especially raw sushi, at a really nice restaurant, you might have seen a green leaf, which is the Perillium folium. Even if you haven't seen that, we've all seen, when you buy sushi from the supermarket, you all see that little green piece of plastic. And you might go, why the hell is this piece of plastic in there? That's actually supposed to be sort of uh, reminiscent of this folium prilla and, and uh, part of it. So it's decorative, but it's also has a function. So it can also, besides the releasing of the exterior, can be used to calm a restless fetus, alleviate, alleviate nausea and vomiting. And here's the reason why it's always with sushi to resolve seafood poisoning. That's why it's actually there is it helps the seafood. If you, you eat that leaf and you should eat that leaf, it'll help just in case some of the seafood is a little off. If you're going to a nice enough restaurant to have that leaf, I think you're probably pretty safe that the seafood's pretty good. But that's the, the that's folium perilla. We have jingje, which is schizonepidae herba. And this also, besides releasing the exterior, they all release the exterior, so I'm not going to say that anymore. But they vents rashes, alleviates itching, and relieves muscle spasms. Again, not often used, but definitely very useful under for certain situations. We have fang fang, which is saposhnikovia radix. So, um, by the way, when we say this, you know, I've said perillifolium and schizonipidae herba and saposhnikovia, and man, I was brave trying to pronounce that a second time successfully, radix. So we have folium means leaf, herba means herb, so it's more a whole herb. Radix means root, so we're talking the root of saposhnikovia. Now I'm just showing off. Fung <laughs> uh, Fung expels wind dampness, alleviates pain, and stops spasms. So definitely something if it gets a little deeper into the muscle area, we want to think about this. We have Jiang Ho, which is no top tyrogy rhizoma suretic. So rhizoma suretic rhizomes are, uh, they're often called like uh, lateral roots. These are the little roots that come off of the roots themselves. So if you've ever seen a root and then little growths coming out of the root. Those are the rhizoma. And they can be, some of them can be quite substantial. Uh, and rhizoma su radix, su means or root. So it's either the rhizomes or the root of notopterygy. And this unblocks painful obstruction. This is actually a really useful herb for uh, things. I'm, I'm gonna put this Western disease in, in please. The Chinese disease is called wind damp uh, uh, B syndrome or, or, or wind damp obstruction and or painful wind down painful obstruction uh, and it's very useful uh, in formulas that have joint pain such as from a Chinese from a Western perspective arthritis uh, not that I'm equating those two I wouldn't say arthritis means take Chiang Ho but it is often used in those sort of situations now Gao Ben which is Ligustici rhizoma and this also dispels wind and dampness and alleviates pain we have Baiju, Angelica de Hurica radix. So if uh, you're listening intently to Spurbs Herbs uh, a little bit ago, we had a whole Spurbs Herbs on Dongwei, which is Angelica, but it's a different Angelica. Um, it, this is de Hurica, uh, or de Hurica, you'll hear it pronounced both ways, and it's that root. So it's different than Dongwei. This is a different species. 
And Bijer is actually quite useful for a bunch of things. It expels dampness, unblocks the nose, alleviates pain, reduces swelling, expels pus, eliminates toxins, and alleviates discharge. So it, it has a lot of interesting functions to it. The next herb is Shi Xin, which is a sari herba, or a sarum is the sort of the, the Western thing for it. And this is actually sort of probably banned in a variety of places. Um, it's difficult to find in the US. I, I don't I, I don't know if technically it's banned at this point. It was kind of at one point, or and there definitely are certain states that have banned it. <coughs> so you want to be careful with this herb. And we're going to find out it's a very strong herb. So it unblocks the orifices, including the nose. It strongly unblocks the nose, warms the lungs, and transforms mucus. It's, it's a very strong herb. It's a useful herb, but again, very difficult to find these days. We have Xianjiang, which is Zingiberis rhizoma recens, or fresh ginger. That's what this is. A uh, very important uh, herb, uh, both in cooking and in Chinese medicine. It does a lot of things. It does release the exterior. <coughs> one of the things someone calls up and says, I think I'm getting a cold. One of the things I will say if I can't see them right away, I'll say, um, put some fresh ginger and some peppermint. We're gonna, peppermint is in the category of release the exterior, to cool and release the exterior, rather warm and release the exterior. Um, combine those two and drink that. So, uh, because people have that, usually or can get it very easily. So it warms the middle burner and alleviates nausea and vomiting. We know that ginger is great for things like morning sickness and any sort of vomiting thing. So that's very useful. Warms the lungs, stops cough, and resolves toxicity. It's this last function of resolve toxicity, which makes it one of the most commonly used herbs in Chinese medicine. It's one of the, the uh, category that we've, my class always called the three treasures, which is ginger, uh, Chinese dates, or, uh, or um, dadzao and uh, licorice or, or gansa or jirgansa, which is honey fried licorice. Those are very commonly added to many, many formulas to kind of help harmonize the formula and make sure that it's non-toxic. So that's Xinjiang. Next herb, Songbai, which is Ali Fistulosi Bulbous. Now that sounds really interesting. Bulbous just means bulb. And that sounds really exotic and everything. This is green onion. So again, you probably have this. It's probably more alluding to Chinese green onion, but green onion is green onion. Uh, and it eliminates toxins, disperses clumps, kills parasites, and then blocks yang. So it's got some interesting functions. It is not very strong. We're going to find that out in just a few minutes. So uh, don't go ha excitedly out and do that a lot. But one of the other things I often um, say to people if they're starting to come down with a cold is go get some miso soup because that has usually has some green onion in it and uh, miso is from soybean and soybean again is in the cool and release the exterior uh, category so um, it's not exactly the same because it's prepared soybean but it's in the ballpark so that's another thing but that's only at the very first stages you can see this is very superficial very initial so it's in a little bit more than I like the, the ginger and peppermint Next herb is Xiangru, which is Mosle Herba. This also promotes urination, eliminates dampness, so useful for that. Uh, we have Sang Erdze, which is Xanthi Fructus. And uh, this is very commonly used. It dispels dampness and opens the nasal passages. In fact, there's a whole formula called Sang Erdze San, which is about opening the nasal passages uh, if you have problems either through a cold or, or allergies or something along those lines. So Sangerdza is often used or added when the nose is stuffed. We have Xinyi or Xinyi Hua, uh, which is Magnolia Floss, Floss means flower. So this is the, the flower, Magnolia flower, uh, which are relatively common to find. And this unblocks the nasal passages, passages as well and is primarily used in, in for that reason. We have, um, here's another one that, you know, I, I never learned when I was going through school. That's what I love doing, Spurbs, is I, I learned so much. All the, the rest of these in this category were not in the initial uh, books that I used and have come into the Materia Medica, so I love that. So this one is Shi He Liu, which is 
tamarsis cacumen. Cacumen means apex or the top of the sort of tamarsis. And it vents rashes, so it's used in, in cases of external attacks with rashes or something. We have jixiang tang or pederie callus, which is uh, eliminates toxins. We have uh, abu shisao, uh, which is cinepeda herba. So this is the herb of cinepeda plant. It opens the nose, removes superficial visual obstruction. I think that's a really interesting function. Benefits the joints and dispels dampness. And even though this was not part of the herbs that I learned when I was going through school, it is definitely an herb that I've, I've learned over the years. And then finally we have, ooh, sweet, which is coriandri herba cum radice, which is uh, radusa cum radice herb. So herb is the plant with uh, the, the radice or radix. Uh, it's just different, um, a different um, colored blanket. God, I'm just not there. But it's uh, just a different form of radix. So it's the herb and root of coriander. I'm thinking this is the coriander tree, but I'm not positive. Vents papules and opens the stomach and disperses food. All right, so those are all the herbs in this category. There's a lot of them. So why would you use one over another one? Let's talk about some of the comparisons of this. So let's talk about, so we have mahuang, ephedra herba, guajir, cinnamomum ramulus, and shishin, Asari herba, and these are all relatively strong in their action to disperse one cold. These are probably the strongest in this in this category. They're very strong. So Mahuang and Guizhou are a particularly effective combination combination to disperse wind cold in the Taiyang or Greater Yang stage or in wind cold excess. So this is um, common. Uh, uh, there's Mahuang Tang, uh, there's Guizhou Tang as well. These are formulas that uh, Mahuang Tang has both Mahuang and Guizhou in it. Guizhou Tang, I think, if my memory uh, works out, does not have the Mahuang in it, um, and it has slightly different function. But um, very, if you have a strong external attack that's hitting you hard, that's what you, and you're not having that productive sweat. You may be sweating, but you're not productively sweating. This is the combination you definitely want to have. We, Xi Xin is great at dispersing cold in the Xiaoyin or lesser Yin stage. So this is quite a deep stage. And is used in cases of externally contracted wind cold fever and a deep pulse indicating an internal condition. So again, like I said, shishin is difficult to, to find these days. You can get it. Um, you can get any of the, anything you want under the counter at a good Chinese pharmacy, but um, it's, it's difficult to import at this point. It's not used in formulas that are constructed for, for distribution at this point. They've been taken out for the most part. Uh, Zisuye, Perilia, Folium, Jingje, Schizinipida, Herba, and Feng, Feng, uh, Nakovia, Radix are more moderate in nature and are used for less severe, more average wind cold order disorders. Zisuye is the strongest of these three in dispersing cold and is used in cases of turbidity. Turbidity is often associated with dampness. So, um, you know, if there's a little bit of dampness, which makes sense because that helps uh, with a lot of uh, things along lines. Jingjie is particularly effective for superficial issues and can be used in both hot or cold conditions and cold disorders. Uh, Feng Feng is similar to and used with Jingjie to treat slightly deeper issues and is particularly useful for aches and pains caused by cold. We have Jianghuo, Nortopturgy Rhizoma Su Radix, Gaoban, Lugustici Rhizoma, and Bai Jiu. Angelica de Hurica radix, all in addition released in the exterior, expel wind damp and alleviate pain. And they're all also used for treating headaches and external conditions. Chuang Ho and Gao Ben are used to treat vertex and occipital headaches. So occipital means back of the, the neck, back of the head headaches. Vertex, of course, means top of the head headaches. Baijir is best for frontal and orbital. So orbital is sort of on the, on the side um, headaches, as well as toothaches and nasal congestion. Chang-ho is good for upper body wind damp painful obstruction. That's what I was talking about earlier. That B syndrome, wind damp painful obstruction that can be associated with arthritis. And, and that takes it, it's used often in formulas that have nothing to do with release in the exterior, by the way, Chang-ho. It's, it's one of a, a pair that we call the two holes uh, that are great for wind damp painful obstruction. 
Uh, Shenjiang zingiveris rhizoma resins or fresh ginger is especially effective for turbidity in the stomach. So that's that dampness in the stomach. Song Bai, Ali Fistulosi bulbus or green onion is very superficial in its actions and should only be used in very early stage conditions. It, it quickly does not, uh, it loses its effectiveness. Hyangru, Mosley herba is particularly useful against summertime colds with dampness. Xin Yi Hua, Magnolia Flas is used almost exclusively for nasal issues. We have Shi He Liu, Tamarasis Cacumen is useful for venting rashes that are not completely expressed. So you have a rash forming, but it's not fully formed. That could be useful there. So there's lots of biomedical actions and effects of the herbs in this category, and they include diaphoresis, which we talked about, induction of perspiration. It can be antiparesis or antipyretic in action, which is reduction of body temperature. It might be sedative and or antispasmodic. Some herbs in this category can reduce activities such as restlessness and spasms. Antibiotic, they may have some antibacterial and antiviral functions. Metabolic, some may decrease blood glucose levels or increase basal metabolic rate. So the basal metabolic rate is sort of our base rate of metabolism. Um, when, uh, you know, that's, it, it differs the more exercise you do, the more your BMR, your basal metabolic rate goes up. And uh, often that can be a positive uh, thing, but not always. Uh, diuretic may cause urination. Analgesic may reduce pain. Anti-inflammatory reduce inflammation, and it can be an anti-venin. Some may actually be useful as an anti-venom for snake bites, though I didn't see any of that in the listed functions of these. Um, but and I don't know if that's something they're investigating or whether that's traditional or what. But that's kind of an interesting potential biomedical action of these herbs. There are some potential for drug-herb interactions. Xinjiang may inhibit cytochrome P450-2C19. So uh, if you take any of my drug-herb interaction courses, cytochrome P450 is one of the three or four major things that we look at. We, we look at three major things and there's kind of a fourth one coming up. That's why I say three or four. Uh, so cytochrome P450 is, is an issue that we look at, whether a nerve or a drug strongly inhibits or, or uh, promotes it. And, uh, but CYP2C19 is uh, not the most common of the cytochrome P450s. It's, it's relatively common, but it's probably in the five to 10% category uh, of drugs will use that. So it's probably not a huge factor in drug herb interactions. However, Xinyi Hua, which is the Flas Magnolia, uh, looks to be a moderate inhibitor of CYP3A4, CYP means cytochrome P450, 3A4. Now 3A4 is the most common uh, form of this and about 60% of drugs will use that enzyme in some way. So the fact that Xinyiwa is a moderate inhibitor of, of 3A4 is an issue to be aware of when combining herbs and drugs. An extract of ginger or Xinjiang may spe speculatively enhance anticoagulation of warfarin and other anticoagulants. Uh, this actually had a case study attached to it. So even though it's speculative, um, it had, it's a little bit higher evidence than, than a lot of the other potential drug of interactions. Look, when I look at this, there's probably about 25 or 30 different potential drug of interactions. Most of them were the lowest level of evidence. So I'm not, I'm not going over each and every one of them. Those low level evidence are not here. Everything needed to be at least a uh, higher level of evidence uh, to, and, and in a person before I, I talk about them on this, on this podcast. Mahon. So Mahuang herbophedra has numerous high-level interactions. And remember, this is banned because of a lot of these issues. Uh, and there's a lot in the in the in the uh, in the literature to look at. But here's a here's a sampling of the ones that I've collected. Antacids may cause ephedrine and pseudoephedrine toxicity from Mahuang due to alkali, alkalinization of the urine. So it makes the urine more alkaline. And that can potentially cause ephedrine and pseudoephedrine toxicity from Mahuang. Mahuang may cause hypertension with MAOI use. So MAOI are monamine, mono, monamine oxidase inhibitors. And uh, most of these are used for depression. Uh, one is used in the treatment of, I want to say, I'm, I'm not sure, Parkinson's or 
Alzheimer's. It's one or the other. I think it's Parkinson's, but I'm not positive. Uh, so it, it may cause hypertension with those those situations. Mawang based on ephedrine content antagonizes the effects of antihypertensives. So in other words, if you combine these with drugs that are designed to lower blood pressure, that is not a good thing. Uh, it will prevent those potentially present, prevent those drugs from working properly. Uh, acetazolamide, an anti-seizure medication for anti-epileptic, may increase the serum concentrations of ephedrine from mahuang. That's not necessarily a good thing. Ephedrine is basically speed, so you want to be careful with that. And finally, mahuang may increase the metabolism of corticosteroids in a human study using ephedrine and not the whole herb. So I wouldn't put a lot of this. It's nice that it's a human study that, that helps it strength um, but it didn't use an herb it just used ephedrine which is uh, basically a drug in and of itself so I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that but it's definitely something to be uh, to to think about if uh, patients on corticosteroids and mahuang but like I said it's pivotal for mahuang so not likely there are some concerns with these herbs as a category since these herbs release the exterior through perspiration Overdosage, prolonged or inappropriate use can cause chi or yin vacuity or dryness. So uh, you don't want to use these all the time. They are not, I repeat, they are not preventatives of getting a cold and should never be used that way. They will cause lots of harm if taken all the time. These herbs should be used in replete conditions, which means strong conditions and caution used in patients with vacuity of the chi, yin, blood, or body fluids. It's not that these herbs cannot be used, they're often used in the, those conditions, but they're used in combination with other herbs that will help support the vacuities that are listed here, the deficiencies, vacuity, deficiency, or, or not exactly synonyms in Chinese medicine, but um, often used together. So should be used with caution in cases of exterior conditions with sores and abscesses. Um, and then the reason why is because it can cause those to, to to grow or burst, so you need to be cautious. Not again, not contraindicated, but cautious. Dysuria syndrome—that's painful urination because this causes urination. If you have a, a, a syndrome with with painful urination, it's not going to be fun. Or bleeding; these should not be used in conditions of bleeding. So that's it. That is our our spurbs herb seven: warm and release the exterior herbs. We covered a lot of ground. Some of it a little superficially, some of it quite in depth, but I hope it was interesting. Our next episode in two weeks, we will be looking at another herb of the world. And this one's a real interesting one. It's ashwagandha. I'm excited to do this because this is super popular herb right now. It's an Ayurvedic herb, one of the most commonly used herbs of its tradition. And it's super popular today. It's often called the Indian ginseng. So uh, I'm really fascinated about getting into into the depths of ashwagandha and see what what we have in store so again i would like to thank you very much for listening appreciate your time i hope you learned a few things as a reminder if you could would like to help support us you can go to spurbsherbs.com and click on the banner ad from our homepage for amazon whenever you buy from amazon that'll help give us a couple shekels to keep on going if you have any questions or concerns or ideas or thoughts, you can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com. That is D-R-G-R-E-G at spurbsherbs.com, S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. Or you can just go to the website spurbsherbs.com and you'll see a contact us page. So again, thank you very much for your time. And here we have the bibliographer. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins. Roger Campbell.